welcome everybody uh, to this uh, special uh, lecture uh, this evening, uh, organized by the London School of Economics. Uh, my name, I'll be chairing the meeting tonight, my name is Professor Cox of the Department of International Relations and Director of the Cold War Studies Center. Uh, as you know, this term, we've had a number of speakers from the United States, uh, none of whom seem to agree with one another, which uh, I think is uh, all to be applauded and shows us still the great diversity of the great republic. Uh, we began with Alan Greenspan, I would say, and we end tonight with John Bolton, with a dash of John Mearsheimer and Steve Walt in the middle. So uh, we're nothing if not pluralist. I'm delighted on behalf of the LSE to welcome uh, John Bolton here uh, this evening. Uh, John Bolton uh, serves currently as a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and prior to arriving at the AEI, of course, I'm sure one of the reasons you're here in great number, he served as the United States Permanent Representative to the United Nations from August 2005 uh, to December 2006 and from May 2001 to May 2005, Ambassador Bolton served um, as Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security also in the Bush administration. Uh, John Bolton is here tonight to talk in general about American foreign policy, about what has happened to the Bush foreign policy, uh, but also, as I said, I'm an appalling commercial pusher of other people's works, including my own. He's also here to launch his book, uh, very nicely in red here, Surrender is Not an Option, uh, Defending America at United Nations and Abroad. That is not only the title of the book, it is also the title of the talk this evening. Ambassador Bolton, you're very, very welcome to the London School of Economics. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, and thank you for the uh, kind introduction. Thank all of you for attending tonight. I'm very uh, pleased to know that uh, Alan Greenspan was here earlier in the year. Uh, he is, uh, in American political terms, one of the great libertarian uh, thinkers in our uh, society today, uh, a true descendant of uh, Ayn Rand, with whom he uh, worked in his uh, younger years, and um, uh, having made a great contribution to public service during uh, his career. Uh, and uh, as uh, was mentioned, uh, the, uh, because I'm shamelessly commercial too, let's face it, my book is on sale outside, and if any of you are bold enough to buy it, I would be happy to sign it for you when this is over. Um, I wanted to uh, talk for a few minutes about the uh, contemporary state of play of American foreign policy, uh, in part because I think that American national security issues should be uh, prominent in our uh, ongoing presidential campaign, although this is obviously a perfectly appropriate time for Americans to debate uh, a number of critically important domestic issues. I think that the uh, challenges that face the United States and the world uh, should impel our citizens to put foreign and defense policy issues higher on their uh, list of uh, priorities in picking a presidential candidate than is likely to be the case. Because I do think the next president uh, will face decisions that uh, will have consequences, obviously, that extend uh, far beyond his or her term in office, uh, not just the next four years, but uh, more broadly. Uh, I think some of these broader issues include, uh, as I discuss in the book, the question of the rise of China and whether it will be peaceful. 
whether China's economic growth will be accompanied by uh, a growth in democratic institutions in China and whether it will fit uh, appropriately into the uh, international economy, uh, or whether uh, tendencies in the People's Liberation Army to increase the size of China's strategic uh, nuclear force, to increase the size of its Blue Water Navy, uh, increasingly to threaten the democracy on Taiwan, uh, and to take other steps uh, that point in a more uh, authoritarian and military direction will prevail. I don't think we know the direction that China will take. Uh, I don't think the Chinese know the direction that China will take. And accordingly, decisions made by the American presidency in shaping uh, the bilateral Sino-American relationship will have huge implications for the rest of the world. Uh, similarly, we have the uh, growth of uh, Indian influence as it uh, moves itself quite uh, forcefully into the uh, nuclear area on a uh, subcontinent with uh, two nuclear powers and the risk uh, of a uh, conventional military uh, exchange escalating into a nuclear exchange having implications uh, well beyond the Indian subcontinent. And, of course, we have the reemergence of uh, Russia uh, from a time when, uh, after the collapse of communism, you had a country with a uh, declining population, uh, an economy the size of the Netherlands, uh, but with uh, thousands of uh, strategic nuclear warheads now with oil at $90 a barrel. Uh, we have a Russia that uh, is reasserting centralized control over most of its institutions, refurbishing its strategic capability, uh, and threatening uh, Europe potentially by uh, cutting off vital supplies of oil and natural gas. These are the sorts of long-term questions uh, that I think give the lie to the uh, viewpoint that I will say is all too common in Europe uh, and somewhat common in the United States that we have passed beyond history that especially in the European Union, people think there are no more external challenges. Uh, I think they continue to exist and, uh, and will do so and will likely grow over time. Not ideological uh, challenges, as we're familiar with in the last half of the 20th century, but challenges nonetheless. Now, beneath this level of um, uh, truly global uh, issues, there are others that are more immediate that confront the United States uh, and others uh, in, the, in the years uh, immediately ahead. And uh, while it's um, uh, convenient in the United States for many politicians uh, to want to talk about Iraq 24-7, and particularly the uh, criticism of the Bush administration, in fact, there are inter international challenges that are much more significant uh, in the next several decades in Iraq. And I think they center principally uh, around the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, and biological, uh, already in the possession of or diligently being searched for by rogue regimes like North Korea and Iran, uh, and in the worst case, these weapons falling into the hands of uh, terrorist groups, as could happen uh, if there is a a catastrophic failure in Pakistan and a fundamentalist Islamic regime comes to power, thus already possessing a nuclear arsenal. Uh, I think that it is in uh, many respects in protecting against the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction uh, that the Bush administration has 
uh, departed most disappointingly from the principles that uh, motivated it at the beginning and that, that lay at the heart of President Bush's uh, original platform that he ran on in 2000. Uh, I think we are in a very dangerous period, uh, and I use the cases of North Korea and Iran as uh, the two most uh, significant examples, not that there aren't others, Pakistan, as I mentioned, uh, and other, other cases where uh, risks remain very high. But I do want to focus on those two for a few minutes, and then uh, at the end I'd be prepared to address uh, questions you may have on uh, any subject that's on your mind. But these two case studies, North Korea and Iran, I think uh, sharpen the issues for debate on how to handle the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and uh, highlight for me, as I explained at some greater length in the book, uh, where I think the Bush administration went wrong and why I parted company with it. Now let's just take the case of North Korea. Uh, this is pr quite probably the uh, most authoritarian regime uh, on the planet today. It's essentially a large prison camp. Uh, it's approximately 20 million inhabitants. Uh, live in the most desperate conditions. Uh, up to a few years ago, uh, the uh, level of famine was, uh, was quite extraordinary uh, in, uh, in our time. And it is statistically the case that over the past several decades, the height and weight of the average North Korean citizen has been declining. Uh, quite, quite something when you think about it, uh, and given a regime uh, that during this entire period has still managed to keep itself in power and pursue uh, nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. Uh, the North Korean regime is essentially a criminal state that will do anything for hard currency. North Korea is the world's largest proliferator of ballistic missile technology, especially in the sensitive uh, Middle Eastern area. Uh, it counterfeits American money uh, so effectively that our Treasury Department can't even really estimate uh, how much uh, money has been counterfeited. North Korea sells illegal narcotics through its diplomatic pouches, uh, and until the government of Japan took uh, law enforcement action recently, essentially controlled much of the illegal activity in Japan. Uh, and at the same time, this is a uh, regime that has uh, pursued for nearly 20 years a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, the North Korean government uh, has become expert in the past 15 years in particular uh, at negotiating to give up its nuclear weapons program. Uh, it's even become quite expert at committing to give up its nuclear weapons program, having done so at least four times, four discrete times in this, uh, in this recent period. In, in each case, in exchange for very tangible economic and political benefits uh, that are designed to keep the regime in power. The North Korean regime did so most recently on February the 13th, uh, mirroring the 1994 agreed framework that it signed with the Clinton administration, uh, committing to give up all aspects of its nuclear program in exchange for these economic and tangible benefits. I personally uh, don't think that North Korea will ever voluntarily give up its nuclear weapons program because these weapons uh, are the trump card for the regime against the United States, against Japan, uh, against others in the region, indeed, even against its own citizens. So I fully expect that North Korea will continue a policy that uh, Professor Fred Clay in, uh, in the United States once called its policy of boundless mendacity, uh, a capacity to make agreements and 
violate them almost before the ink is dry. And the most recent example of uh, North Korea's boundless mendacity uh, quite probably uh, was under construction in the desert in Syria near the Euphrates River, uh, a facility attacked by Israel on September the 6th. We don't know all the details of what that facility uh, was involved in. In fact, this is a, an aspect that's very troubling to many in the U.S. Congress these days, why we don't know more about it. But from all that we can tell from public reports, from what I've learned from my own conversations, uh, was some kind of, uh, of uh, operation jointly conducted by North Korea and Syria. Uh, it may have been a clone of North Korea's Yongbyon reactor. Uh, it may have been a sale of nuclear technology from North Korea to Syria. It may have been some kind of joint venture. But from the North Korean point of view, what better way to hide your nuclear program from the prying eyes of inspectors than to build it in Syria? Uh, and from the Syrian point of view, what better way to acquire the nuclear technology that they long desired uh, than to get it from North Korea? Uh, this facility, by uh, most uh, uh, reviews of the publicly available overhead photography, has been under construction for four or five years. That is to say, during the entire life uh, of the six-party talks. Uh, and it was striking that within a day or two after the Israeli attack on September the 6th, uh, North Korea was first out of the box with a press release condemning the Israeli attack. Now, what would spark North Korea's interest in an Israeli attack in a building uh, in the Syrian desert by the Euphrates River? Maybe it's the common border between North Korea and Syria. Oh, no, I guess that can't be right. I think it's because there were North Korean technicians at that facility engaged in constructing uh, whatever, uh, whatever it was. Uh, a clear indication, if it was a nuclear facility, that they had been violating the February 13 agreement uh, right from the start. Now, we'll see how North Korea turns out. Um, it's hard to have case studies uh, of uh, scientific experiments in international relations, uh, but I'm willing to predict that North Korea is lying again, that North Korea has no intention of giving up its nuclear weapons program, although it's more than happy to accept benefits from the United States and others. Uh, and until we have a thoroughly credible verification mechanism uh, to test whatever declaration North Korea finally makes uh, of its nuclear program, we should still worry uh, about North Korea, because not only is it a threat uh, in Northeast Asia, which it most assuredly is, because of its proclivity to sell anything to anybody who has hard currency, uh, it is a global threat uh, from the prospect that it could sell a nuclear weapon to al-Qaeda or anybody else with the right amount of cash. Now, the facility uh, that uh, the Israelis bombed uh, in the Syrian desert uh, may well have other connections as well, and it highlights why President Bush's phrase about an axis of evil was not simply metaphorical. We know that North Korea has aided Iran's ballistic missile program for a long period of time, perhaps 15 years or longer. In 1998, North Korea caused a sensation when it launched a Taipodong missile that landed in the Pacific Ocean east of Japan. Uh, needless to say, concentrating the Japanese attention uh, on the potential threat posed by North Korea. And after a year of haggling to great international fanfare, North Korea announced a moratorium on the test launching of ballistic missiles from the Korean Peninsula, thus scoring two propaganda coups, first by launching the missile and then by declaring the moratorium. 
For all the credit that North Korea got because of that moratorium, unknown until more recently was the fact that it simply intensified its cooperation with Iran's ballistic missile program. Not surprisingly, because both countries were using the same Soviet-era SCUD-based missile technology. So that while North Korea was reaping the benefits of uh, a moratorium on launch testing, it was also reaping the concrete benefits of Iran's ongoing ballistic missile program by receiving telemetry and other data from the Iranians. This is why the notion of outsourcing a weapons program from North Korea to Iran in the case of ballistic missiles and quite possibly outsourcing uh, the nuclear program to Syria is something the North Koreans have a great deal of familiarity with. We don't know whether uh, North Korea and Iran have cooperated on their nuclear program. We do know that both were beneficiaries of the uh, prolifer pro proliferation network of Dr. A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani scientist who stole uh, uranium enrichment technology from the European consortium Uranco and used it as the uh, basis for the Pakistani nuclear weapons program. So it wouldn't be surprising if North Korea and Iran had uh, relations in the nuclear field as well. Uh, Iran has also been pursuing a nuclear weapons capability for close to 20 years. It has uh, concealed data from the International Atomic Energy Agency in violation of its safeguards agreement with that agency. Uh, it has falsified data. Uh, it has gone so far as to bulldoze buildings and excavate hundreds of cubic yards of dirt in an effort to hide traces of radioactivity from IAEA inspectors. Now, Iran says that its program is for purely civil, uh, peaceful nuclear energy purposes. Uh, and it makes this claim in part on the basis that, um, uh, that it is running out of oil and natural gas. A few years ago, I asked the U.S. Department of Energy to uh, look into this Iranian claim, and uh, the Department of Energy came back and said, well, you know, in fact, the Iranians are correct. They are running out of oil and natural gas. Based on an extrapolation from the reserves that we know of and looking at current rates of domestic consumption and international export, uh, Iran will run out of oil and natural gas in about 350 or 400 years. So, of course, it's very prudent to begin planning now for that day down the road when you're going to run out of, uh, of the lake of oil and natural gas that Iran uh, sits on. The fact is there's simply no explanation for the scope uh, of Iran's nuclear activity uh, all the way from uranium in the ground, which Iran has deposits of, to the weaponization uh, uh, work that, uh, that Iran is engaged in to take a a nuclear device, made it with a ballistic missile, and used the ballistic missile as a delivery system. Uh, we know from recent IAEA reports, just as a few examples, that Iran has uh, long had uh, the uh, engineering uh, information as to how to form hollow hemispheres of plutonium and uranium metal. Now, there is no uh, peaceful uh, nuclear use for hollow hemispheres of uranium metal and plutonium metal, which is not like tin or steel. This is uh, uh, very uh, sensitive, delicate, and dangerous materials to work with. Why would anyone be interested in forming hollow hemispheres of these two uh, metals? 
because this is how you form the core of a nuclear weapon, like the metal globes you remember from your childhood. You take two hollow hemispheres, you join them together, you surround them with high explosives, you set off the high explosives, it collapses the metal to form a critical mass, and then you get the uncontrolled chain reaction uh, of, a nuclear, of a nuclear detonation. Why be interested in hollow hemispheres of plutonium and uranium metal? Uh, another interest in abstract physics, perhaps? I don't think so. Uh, and we know, uh, as Secretary Powell revealed uh, in a press conference in November of 2004, that Iran has uh, extensive work on uh, fashioning a nuclear device into a warhead, that is to say, compacting it and fitting it into the confined uh, space limitations of one of its uh, ballistic missiles in order to make it deliverable. The Iranian uh, effort uh, has uh, proceeded despite uh, nearly uh, five years of negotiation efforts by France, Britain, and Germany, what we call the EU3 in the United States. Uh, during this entire period of time, with fits and starts and back and forth, the Europeans have tried to persuade Iran uh, to give up its uranium enrichment capability and to cease its strategic effort to acquire nuclear weapons. And during this entire time, Iran has consistently said it would never give up uh, uranium enrichment. Uh, and during this time, the Iranians have uh, essentially perfected all of the steps they need in the nuclear fuel cycle to get from uranium in the ground to the highly enriched uranium it needs for weapons capability. This is a classic study in the proposition that negotiations and diplomacy are not cost-free. Diplomacy, like many other tools in international relations, is just that. It's not a panacea. It's a tool that you have to measure along a cost-benefit analysis. And this uh, resource that diplomacy has given the Iranians is something they couldn't have bought for love or money, and that's time. Time is almost always on the side of the proliferator. And the Iranians have used the time under the cover of negotiations uh, to make the necessary advancements they needed to in their own science and technology so that they are at a point now where they have the indigenous capability to fashion a nuclear device. And the only issue uh, is how many resources they're going to put into the program at a time and a manner of their choosing uh, to fashion a nuclear warhead. And with oil at $90 plus a barrel, uh, resources are not a problem for the Iranians. Now, where does that leave us, both in the case of uh, North Korea and Iran? Uh, the answer is with very few attractive options. Unless you're prepared to see North Korea with nuclear weapons and unless you're prepared to see uh, Iran with nuclear weapons. I think in the case of Korea, the only... Uh, solution to the North Korean nuclear weapons problem uh, is the end of the North Korean regime. Now, in North Korea, this is not a question of regime change. This is a question of fulfilling the uh, Allied policy in World War II, which was that Korea would be divided only on a temporary basis and that the peninsula should be reunified. North and South Korea are uh, Cold War anomalies. Uh, they represent the failure to conclude the final peace of World War II. And I will tell you that just as the two Germanys have been reunited, someday the two Koreas will be reunited. The question is whether they will reunite easily and peacefully uh, or whether they will reunite in conditions of grave concern to all of us. 
Now, I think the way to handle uh, North Korea is not to uh, trust Kim Jong-il uh, and his uh, police state regime. The answer for the United States is to uh, apply more pressure in the bilateral Sino-American relationship uh, to do something about North Korea. Now, I take China at its word that it does not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. China's logic here is very straightforward, and I think it's persuasive. They believe that a North Korea with nuclear weapons destabilizes Northeast Asia. And a, an unstable Northeast Asia, in the Chinese view, will impede Chinese economic development. I, I accept that argument. I understand their logic. But the, uh, the next step from China's point of view, uh, which is to do something about North Korea, is something they're unwilling to do. Because fundamentally, China likes a divided Korean peninsula. It likes having a buffer uh, between it and South Korea, where American troops are stationed. Uh, it fears the impact of a reunited Korea, uh, perhaps because of the uh, large population of ethnic uh, Koreans inside Chinese territory across the Yalu River. It fears that if there is a reunified Korea, uh, it will find American troops on the Yalu. Uh, it's seen that movie before in the 1950s. It didn't like it then. It doesn't like it any better today. So the consequence is that China fears that if it applies too much pressure to Kim Jong-il, it will collapse his regime, and you will get reunification of the peninsula. China supplies 80 to 90 percent of North Korea's energy supply uh, and could easily apply as much pressure as it wants, uh, which it has done uh, in precious few occasions. So the Chinese are caught in a bind because they're uncertain how much pressure to apply to stop North Korea from having nuclear weapons, uh, but fearful of applying too much and bringing the regime down, they don't apply much at all. And the result is North Korea keeps its nuclear weapons capability and increases the risk that Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and others uh, will develop their own nuclear weapons capability. I still think the Chinese can be persuaded, and I think that's the course the U.S. should be following. Now, in the case of Iran, I think our options are uh, much more constrained, and I think they're constrained in large measure because of the more than four years of failed European diplomacy. My own preference uh, would be to have regime change in Iran, because I think with the overthrow of the theocracy that has ruled there since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, a new government uh, would be much more likely to conclude that it was in Iran's best interest to give up the pursuit of nuclear weapons. We saw this phenomenon in South Africa. When the apartheid regime fell and a truly democratic government came to South Africa, the new democratic government forswore the pursuit of nuclear weapons. And I think the same uh, potential exists in Iran. This regime is more fragile than you think. Uh, there is enormous economic dissatisfaction across the country. The mullahs have made hash of the economy since 1979, uh, and that uh, mismanagement is becoming ever more apparent. The young people of Iran, who number under the age of 30, nearly 70% of the population, are very dissatisfied with the uh, religious rule that they live under. They're educated, they're sophisticated, they can see uh, that they, there's a possibility of a different life if they could break through uh, the current regime. And there's enormous ethnic dissatisfaction in Iran. The population is just slightly over 50% Persian, and there are Baluchis, Arabs, Azeris, Kurds, Turkmen, and others 
who don't like the constraints that they face because of their ethnicity. Uh, had we been working on regime change more effectively over the past four years, I think we'd be a lot closer to it today. I still think it's worth pursuing, but I acknowledge that it's not like turning on or off a light switch. It takes time, and time, as I said before, is not on our side. It's on the side of those pursuing nuclear weapons, which is why, uh, as a last resort, I think we have to contemplate the use of force. Uh, this is not a desirable option. It is extremely risky, uh, and it is something that we can contemplate only because life is about choices. And if the choices between a nuclear weapons capable Iran and the targeted use of military force against Iran's nuclear program, I think we have to look uh, at military force. Uh, this is a regime that has stated its intention to eliminate the state of Israel. Uh, it has held conferences entitled The World Without the United States, uh, and it is perfecting uh, a nuclear capability. This is a classic analytical marriage between capabilities and intentions. And as Dan Gillerman, the uh, Israeli ambassador of the United Nations, said last year in President uh, Ahmadinejad, we have a man who denies the existence of the original Holocaust while preparing the second one. So we're going to confront a decision, I think, in the near future whether force is going to be used against the Iranian nuclear program. And I come back to that Israeli raid on September the 6th against whatever that facility was uh, in the middle of the uh, Syrian desert. Uh, the Israelis demonstrated they were able to slice through the radar supplied by Russia, very similar to that supplied to the Iranians, something I'm sure that they're taking due note of in Tehran. Uh, they demonstrated the capacity uh, to engage in exactly the kind of uh, targeted raid that would be uh, required against the Iranian uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, and it demonstrates why this is uh, feasible uh, even over the longer distances that would be required for Iran. Now, I don't think this is desirable. I hope it doesn't happen. But we're at this point today in large measure because of the failure of European diplomacy, a failure that was predicted uh, well in advance of the point we've reached today. It's not just the issues of Iran and North Korea, as I mentioned at the outset. These are simply the two best examples. Uh, but much of the rest of the world is watching to see if these regimes keep their nuclear weapons. In the Middle East alone in the past year, uh, a dozen regimes have announced they too are interested in peaceful civil nuclear programs a clear sign that countries are watching the Iranian experience and drawing their own conclusions. This is what proliferation is all about. Each new country that gets a weapon of mass destruction is a threat not only in and of itself, but because it inspires others to acquire these same weapons. Dealing with this threat of proliferation uh, will be the single most important issue that the next American president faces, and it's why it's such an important uh, issue for uh, the United States. It's one reason, as a small contribution to that debate, I wrote, surrender is not an option, uh, and I hope it is an issue that is discussed broadly over the next year. Thank you very much.
gentleman here. Yeah. One at a time, please. Make it short. <laughs> yeah, please. Ambassador Bolton, uh, two of your compatriots, uh, Professors Walt and Mearsheimer, recently named you as one of a small group within uh, the U.S. policy elite that um, put Israelis inter Israel's interests over and above America's. And I take it for granted that you think their analysis is flawed, but I wanted to ask what specifically you think they misinterpret or misrepresent in order to come to their conclusion, and if you think that any part of their analysis is essentially correct. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let me just say... Um, that, uh, that their book and the essay on which it's based uh, is a classic example, which I'm sure students will appreciate, that you can take professors who may be expert in one field, and when they apply themselves to another field, fail miserably. Uh, they, it never happens at the these, these are <laughs> These are international relations professors who are attempting to understand uh, domestic American politics. Uh, and my advice to them is stick to your day jobs. Uh, the, the, the arguments that they adduce are uh, really uh, so lacking in evidence that you have to, uh, you have to wonder uh, uh, about, about uh, causes other than uh, uh, empirical, uh, the desire to achieve empirical truth here. You know, uh, I talk to, in any given day or week, uh, people on all sides of a whole range of issues. And if you take the list of people they have in their uh, book and, and try to uh, identify what it is they have in common, uh, it's almost impossible uh, over the spectrum of people that they lump together uh, to, find, uh, uh, to find a common theme. Uh, you know, uh, I get into the category of non-Jews who favor Israel. You know, it's one thing you take all the Jews. That that's easy. Then you come to Lutherans like me. So so what so what am I? I'm I'm a I'm a Zionist Lutheran, I suppose. You know, this is uh, uh, after a certain point, you just have to say that uh, it, it's not intellectually worth debating. Uh, usually, what I'm accused of is excessive zeal for uh, American patriotism. People in uh, in other countries say I'm too much of an American nationalist, except for Walt and Mearsheimer who think I'm too much of an Israeli nationalist. You know, I just think it's foolish. And uh, uh, beyond that, I just don't think there's, that, there's no empirical reality there to debate. Right, well, here's one IR professor who's doing a night job at the moment. So there you go. <laughs> over to the gentleman over here. Oh, thank you. Um, given your argument that uh, European diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Iran has failed, Given that the Israeli attack on Syria seems to have demonstrated that Russian defenses, air defense systems sold to Syria and Iran don't work, uh, given that time is running out, as you uh, say, and given that Bush and Cheney, whom you know better than we do, have uh, another year or so in office, do you think they will feel obliged, given all the previous circumstances of settling the issue with Iran before they go, should we therefore expect an American attack or an American-Israeli attack in Iran uh, before the next presidential election? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have said yes, but I think the president's being told that uh, uh, he, shouldn't, uh, he shouldn't contemplate it before the election. After the election, he'll be told he shouldn't contemplate it because he's a lame duck. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do. I think it's uh, more likely... Uh, in the next year, if you ask for a prediction, if an attack occurs, it would be an Israeli attack, not an American attack. 
There's a the gentleman here, and then there's a gentleman over there. Yeah. Yes. Come second, you're second. It's first here, second here. Yeah, please, sir. Yes, uh, we all share, I'm sure, your concern about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I think one has to ask oneself why Syria and Iran and some of the other countries in that region want to get acquire them. And I think the answer is plain, that Israel has had them for years. And it's very shocking, I think, for... It's very shocking for the Arab world to witness a, double, a kind of double standard, really. And it doesn't serve America's best interest for them to be seen as making one judgment about the Muslim world, another judgment about Israel. It really weakens your position, sir, I think. Well, uh, I appreciate uh, that you've made that that argument. Let me just say a couple things. You know, uh, Israel wouldn't have a nuclear program if it weren't for France. Can I just say that here in a European country? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't an American program that, that gave... You're going a European country. Yeah. That, that, uh, <laughs> you're, the, you're the ones who... Uh, anyway. Uh, so, so, it was, so it was France that provided the wherewithal for the Israelis to do that, number one. Number two, the one thing you can say about Israel, Pakistan, a Muslim country, and India was that they never signed, thank you, they never signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So unlike other countries, they at least had a certain degree of political and intellectual honesty. They never committed themselves to be non-nuclear weapon states. Uh, Third, the uh, obligation that Iran and others uh, undertook in the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was taken after uh, public knowledge about the Israeli program. And the notion that somehow all of this is in response to Israel, I think, is contrary to the historical evidence. Uh, And finally, I think that the uh, fact is, even if Israel's nuclear program disappeared tomorrow, uh, countries in the Middle East would be pursuing nuclear weapons in part because Pakistan acquired them, which, which was a factor in inducing Iran to go after it, and which is now inducing Uh, many of the Arab states in the region to consider or perhaps even to go farther as in the case of Syria to acquire nuclear weapons. This is the reason why proliferation is a risk and why it is different from the Cold War period where there was essentially a binary standoff between the two uh, major nuclear powers. That's not the case in the post-Cold War period and it's why it's so dangerous. But let's be clear, it's been the American position as it's been the British position for years that there shouldn't be any weapons of mass destruction anywhere in the Middle East. Uh, gentleman over here. How can you, is, is sort of an extension to the question that was previously asked, um, how can you explain the unconditional U.S. military support in the order of billions of dollars to Israel that allows it to develop weapons of mass destruction and act as an aggressor in the region? Because according to Human Rights Watch, Israel deliberately targeted civilians during the Lebanon war, and you refused to call for ceasefire, and, and you said you're damn proud to do that. Yeah. Well, let, let's, try and, let's try and make the factual basis of the question correct. Uh, I, don't, I never saw any evidence uh, that Israel was deliberately targeting civilians. Uh, moreover, if that were the case, under applicable American law, we would cut off armed shipments to them. Um, and, and that is something that, uh, that uh, the U.S. – that is a standard that applies to any recipient of uh, American military assistance and something that we took uh, and do take very seriously. 
What I said was that uh, the uh, effort we were making in the Security Council after Hezbollah once again attacked across the Blue Line, attacked across the Lebanese border into Israel, killed Israeli soldiers and kidnapped two of them and rocketed uh, Israeli civilian settlements was that we didn't want another Middle East ceasefire, of which there have been dozens over the decades. Uh, Secretary Rice said at the time we wanted to use the uh, outbreak of these hostilities to move to a different uh, level in the Middle East that might uh, fundamentally change this uh, cycle that we see so often. Uh, and in particular, uh, to achieve the objective of allowing the democratic government of Lebanon to exercise full sovereignty over Lebanese territory and to break the hold of the terrorist group Hezbollah on large portions of the country. Now, I am sorry to say that that didn't happen. And today, the greatest threat to democracy in Lebanon remains the terrorist group Hezbollah supplied by Syria and Iran. There's a lady up there. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, what would you say is the proper method for beginning to reunite the two Koreas? Would China stand for this, and what would be the United States' role in this endeavor? Yeah. Well, I think uh, one way to go about this, uh, in addition to raising the importance of Korean reunification in the Sino-American relationship, Actually, let me spend a minute on that because this is important. We, we often talk in the United States about raising issue X or issue Y as a higher priority in relations between Washington and Beijing. Too often we don't do anything because of the strength of the argument about the commercial and business interest in China. Uh, we talk about uh, Tibet and the Dalai Lama, and I think President Bush uh, did a courageous and honorable thing by bringing the Dalai Lama uh, to the White House and by the award that, uh, that he was given. But we talk about uh, trying to increase our support for religious freedom uh, inside China, but we never really raise these things uh, in the bilateral relationship in a way that might affect adversely commercial matters. And I think that's a mistake. I think North Korea is one of those issues that we should make more prominent. Uh, and to stress how important it is, as it is important for China not to have uh, a nuclear North Korea. Uh, and if we could do this effectively, then I think there's a chance of pushing China off the dime and getting them to do something about Kim Jong-il's regime. But in the meantime, I think one thing that South Korea could do would be to honor its own constitution, which says that uh, Ethnic Koreans born on the Korean Peninsula, in effect, are all citizens of the Republic of Korea. Uh, and if South Korea were to uh, grant refugee status to Koreans fleeing North Korea, if it were to open its arms uh, to, uh, to its fellow Koreans, I think there's a possibility that you would have the kind of uh, impact inside North Korea uh, as occurred concededly in the very different circumstances of that first pinprick in the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe when Hungary opened even a small path uh, to, uh, to the West and refugee flows began in a way that destabilized the uh, communist governments of Central and Eastern Europe. I think that's one way to demonstrate that the people of North Korea are held there essentially by force and intimidation uh, and that the prospect of uh, welcoming refugees from North Korea uh, into the South 
uh, would, would both uh, be a uh, recommitment to the South Korean Constitution and might also open the path to unification. That's a lot better, uh, although it's risky, uh, it's a lot better than a resort to military force. There's no doubt what would happen if, uh, if, there were, if the use of military force had to occur in Korea, uh, but the cost would be extraordinarily high, and it's not anything that anybody wants. So I would look at the refugee path as one way to open that up. Ambassador Bolton, uh, thank you for being here first. Um, given that um, Israel has nuclear weapons and the United States has nuclear, enormous nuclear capabilities, um, I think you would agree that uh, using nuclear weapons, by the, uh, if the Iranian regime would use nuclear weapons, there would be national suicide. So, uh, in how far would nuclear weapons? from the regime uh, in Iran really change the, the situation at all? Well, I think it could change the situation dramatically. We know from uh, uh, evidence such as the Kareen A, which was a ship loaded with conventional weapons that went from Iran to Palestinian Authority five years ago, that uh, Iran not only finances terrorist groups, it arms and equips them as well. Uh, and you can use the Uh, nuclear weapons capability uh, in ways beyond delivery on ballistic missiles. You could give it to a terrorist group who could put it in a boxcar and bring it to a city in Europe or the United States and detonate it uh, in a parking lot somewhere. And I can tell you that uh, put together carefully enough, it would be very difficult even for America's nuclear scientists to say with absolute certainty where that weapon was manufactured. So that the question of retaliation uh, is far from certain, unlike in the Cold War where we knew that the risk was from a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, you can track ballistic missile trajectories. But if it's confused enough to ask where the source of the uranium or plutonium was in the nuclear weapon, perhaps they had some from Korea, perhaps they had some from Iran, perhaps they had some from sources we couldn't trace, I think it would be very hard for the U.S. government or any government to say, a nuclear weapon's just been detonated in City X, and we know to 100 degree, 100 percent certainty where it came from, and therefore will retaliate against that country. This is an enormous, a task of enormous uh, intellectual and scientific difficulty that we're wrestling with right now. So I don't fear a ballistic missile attack so much uh, from uh, a regime like Iran. I do fear it from uh, a regime like Kim Jong Il's, which has a mental attitude of uh, Hitler in the bunker. Uh, but, but from others that are slightly more sophisticated, uh, I worry about uh, whether they think they can get away with it. Gentleman there. Thank you. Um, as a former uh, intern at, at USUN in the fall of 2005, it's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you. Um, my, my, my question has to do with Iraq. You're a brave man to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question has to do with Iraq and, and, and the U.S. policy of, uh, of deficit financing. Um, as you're well aware, the U.S. has pursued the policy of deficit financing the Iraq war and they've borrowed a, a, a large amount, billions upon billions of dollars from, from China in particular. Do you see that there's a negative consequence within the UN, the UN Security Council in particular, in uh, the U.S.'s ability to, to coerce or compel China to take action in regards to North Korea or Sudan uh, in regards to the deficit financing that we've, that we've pursued with them? Yeah, uh, you know, this, this question of the uh, total uh, reserves in dollars that China holds, its, uh, its uh, holdings in U.S. debt uh, instruments, 
uh, its trade imbalance with the United States, uh, are all things that are often advanced as reasons why we can't pressure China on North Korea, why we can't pressure China on Tibet. Uh, uh, I just doubt how uh, uh, significant these economic issues are uh, in reality. Uh, because to every side, there are two sides to every economic transaction. And while the balance sheet may look to be in China's favor, uh, I'm not sure these days, for example, where else it could sell its toys if it weren't selling them in the United States. I'm not sure they're going to sell many in the United States in the near future. But I don't, I don't see, I don't see that this economic disparity uh, really impedes our ability to advance political and other objectives. I think we're being too timid vis-a-vis China. I think China is uh, vulnerable in many respects. It's large and growing demand for energy, which will define its foreign policy in many respects for decades to come. It explains why China gives cover to Iran and the Security Council. It explains why China gives cover to the Khartoum regime when it comes to Darfur. Uh, this, this is also a signal of real vulnerability for China because its economic growth cannot continue without assured supplies of energy. It's something they have to worry about. The gentleman with the blue shirt at the back, and then I've got some other people. I'll bring you in as quickly as possible. Yeah. Thank you very much, sir. I was wondering, given the disasters, I think, um, is perhaps slightly too strong a word, but not very, of the last 15 years of attempting to reach some kind of peace deal as resolves the Israel question of Israel's boundaries, given that the unilateral withdrawal essentially led to the Jewish population having to be rid from Gaza. So what, um, what, what's your views on the latest attempts at some kind of compromise between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government? Do you see any hope there? And what are the pluses and minuses of the attempts? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not optimistic about what's going to happen in Annapolis tomorrow. Uh, I don't think the moment is right to try and make progress on Israeli-Arab issues. I think you've got a weak and divided uh, Israeli government uh, in, in terms of internal domestic uh, Israeli politics. Uh, the Palestinian Authority is broken, uh, perhaps irreparably, uh, with uh, Hamas, the terrorist group, and charge of the Gaza Strip, uh, and I'm not quite sure who is in charge of the West Bank uh, except for the Israeli military. So I don't see, I don't see who uh, stands on the Palestinian side who can make serious commitments or even more importantly carry through on them. Uh, that's why I think that, uh, that Annapolis is not likely to be successful. I, I, I wish I could say something else and I hope we'll be surprised tomorrow, but I don't think so. So my point is you have to uh, – Jim Baker, as uh, President Bush 41, Secretary of State, once said with respect to the Middle East, we can't want peace more than the parties themselves. And until the objective conditions are propitious to, uh, to try and bridge the gaps, uh, and I don't think they are at the moment, I think the likely outcome is failure. And I, I fear that because I think it will leave the region and the United States in a worse position. Yes, sir. Earlier you um, spoke of the EU3 and the and of failed European democracy. I wondered what you thought was the future of the EU on the international stage, especially considering the heightened, or should I say consolidated, foreign policy powers in the new Lisbon Treaty. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know what I personally, I don't know what the future of the European Union is, and the only solace that gives me is neither does the European Union. Um, <laughs> You know, you, at some point you have to decide what you want this thing to be. 
I mean, you generically, you, you Europeans. And uh, there is not agreement on this. There is not agreement on it. If you listen to uh, Elmer Brock, who's a German uh, parliamentarian and uh, has been and may still be the chairman of the uh, European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, he has said, and you know, quite straightforwardly, the European Union is a state under construction. Okay, that means when it's done construction, the United Kingdom will be a county in that big state. Now, if that's what you want, well, that's fine. That's it's, that's what democratic societies do. They make up their own minds. If you'd rather not be part of a European state, uh, that, then you've got a different view of things. And I think if you look into the European Union. Uh, I, I judge there to be a real distinct dis disjunction between European elites and European publics, where I think there's much more enthusiasm for that state under construction among the elites than there is among the publics. And I think until these differences are reconciled, the European Union's future will not only remain in doubt, but it will impair the ability of Europe uh, to function and to have a common uh, foreign policy. And I think one of the consequences has been uh, the opposite of the prediction that a combined Europe will have a larger weight on the world stage. It actually has a, it, its weight is actually less than the sum of its parts because it spends so much time trying to reach consensus that it's not effective uh, before, during, and after that process. So from my perspective, uh, what happens is that it, too often the European Union uh, absorbs a problem and that becomes a formula for inaction not opposition to the United States, just inaction, which means you're not getting to the causes of the problem and you're not solving it. So I leave it to Europeans to decide what they want to be when they grow up. But right now, the European Union is not a success politically. It's a great success economically. Okay, I think we got that point. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask you the Sarkozy question, but I won't. Okay. I'd, I'd love to answer that question. Okay, and I'll ask you the Sarkozy. What about Sarkozy then? <laughs> Uh, you know, to return to crass commercialism for a minute, in my book, in the book um, I've got a quotation from former French President Jacques Chirac, who says, uh, first I find out what the Americans are going to do, that, then I do the exact opposite. That way I know I'm always right. I don't think that's President Sarkozy's model. And uh, uh, I, think, I think this is a demonstration why uh, the transatlantic relationship is actually in stronger shape than a lot of people think. Uh, I would urge you, if, if you haven't had the opportunity to do so, uh, to read uh, President Sarkozy's uh, remarks to a joint session of Congress, where it's true he did not mention Iraq, uh, but he did say in a very moving passage, wherever an American soldier falls in battle anywhere in the world, I feel like a member of my family has fallen. Uh, that is... You know, for those of you who laugh, God bless you. But I'm telling you, that was a statement that mm -hmm. uh, touched a lot of Americans mm -hmm. and uh, has a profound impact on our view. One, one, one of the reasons why I think Sarkozy could bring uh, France back into the integrated joint command of NATO, which I think would be an entirely good thing. There we go. You first heard it here. The lady here, please. Yeah. Hello. Um, Mr. Bolton, how would you respond to the view that for countries like North Korea, having uh, nuclear weapons or just the threat of having nuclear weapons acts kind of as insurance against invasion by the U.S., so that so long as the U.S. has weapons of mass destruction and capabilities of invading other countries, that their 
their activities in that sphere kind of means that they're almost immune from military action. And there seems to be a kind of a do as I say, not as I do judgment on so-called rogue nations, but not a lot on the U.S. in terms of its development of weapons. Finally, this is kind of a non sequitur, but I would like to bring it in if I can. You haven't said very much about the United Nations, and I, I hope you'll bring that in some more tonight. Yeah, well, on the other hand, why should I? Um, <laughs> on to the question. Yeah. With, with, respect, with respect to the nuclear weapons issue, the fact is that uh, the uh, international community uh, codified the uh, state of development on nuclear weapons in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And a lot of countries didn't like the compromise that was reflected in that treaty, but they accepted it. And what they accepted was five legitimate nuclear weapon states that happened to be the five permanent members of the Security Council and that all others that signed that treaty took on the status of non-nuclear weapon states and pledged not to pursue nuclear weapons, okay? Now, how many of you like that treaty? Let me put it this way. How many of you don't like that treaty? How many of you even know what it is? Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, there we go. You know, I'm always criticized. I'm always criticized for, for being dismissive of international law. Here, here's a treaty that uh, that was undertaken over almost 40 years ago uh, to deal with the question of nuclear nonproliferation. Some states didn't sign it, as I said before. Other states did, with the full knowledge that there were five states clearly that had nuclear weapons. And their possession of nuclear weapons was accepted. And these countries undertook a solemn commitment, or at least a solemn commitment as they understand they could make by signing that treaty, not to pursue nuclear weapons. So what's the justification? The justification is that was the reality that they accepted. Uh, it, is, it is a fact that in the Bush administration, we have reduced uh, American nuclear weapons capability uh, by significant amounts, by signing with Russia in 2002, the Treaty of Moscow that uh, codifies that both countries will reduce their operationally deployed strategic nuclear weapons by two-thirds over a 10-year period, down to a level of between 17 and 2,100 uh, operationally deployed weapons. Uh, if the simple fact that there are five nuclear weapon states, one of which you're sitting in, by the way, uh, it's simple fact that they have nuclear weapons excuses everybody else to pursue nuclear weapons as well, uh, then, then there is no point to the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. So, I mean, you can't, and that's why Iran uh, uh, and the justification that uh, people outside of Iran make for its pursuit of nuclear weapons is inherently contradictory. They say first, well, they agree with Iran that its pursuit of nuclear power is purely for civil purposes, but then they say they live in a threatening region. You know, they're either pursuing nuclear weapons or they're not, and the fact they live in a threatening region was true 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when they signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty as it is today. Uh, somebody up in the back there had the... Yeah, please. Uh, part of your book's title, I didn't read it yet, but part of the title is Defending America at the United Nations. Shouldn't working at the United Nations be more about cooperation than about defending something? There are 192 members of the United Nations. Every one of them pursues its national interest. There's only one that gets criticized for it, and I was its ambassador. Uh, you know, a lot of countries look at the United Nations as a forum to balance against American power. And it's one reason I call walking across First Avenue in Manhattan entering the twilight zone. 
because so many of these countries have wonderful bilateral relations with the United States, indeed are recipients of substantial American assistance, but when they get into the uh, crowd mentality in New York, uh, they try and find ways to limit or constrain American power. And that's their perfect right to do, just as it's our perfect right to resist that. That's what we're defending. We're also defending, I think, a very significant um, uh, concept, very, very significant, broadly very significant for Americans about sovereignty. What do I mean by sovereignty? I mean the sovereignty of American citizens. Our sovereignty in America is not vested in a crowned head. It's vested in the people. When we talk about exercising sovereignty, we're talking about voting, voting on issues that are legitimately the subject of democratic debate. I see people smiling. I just, I'm amazed at that. But let me give you one example. The United Nations General Assembly voted uh, last week for a moratorium on the death penalty. Uh, I think about six or seven nations voted against it, one of which was the United States. And the reason for that is, in the United States, we have a broad debate about the death penalty. We have people who are in favor of it. We have people who are against it. We debated at the federal level. We debated at the state level. Uh, we have active litigation every time a death penalty is imposed by juries uh, of the peers of the people who are convicted. Now, you can favor the death penalty or you can oppose the death penalty, but I will tell you this, and I think this is a position supported by a huge majority of Americans. The issue of the death penalty has nothing whatever to do with the United Nations. Whether we have a death penalty in the United States or not is our decision. And the notion that the UN General Assembly has any role to play on that subject is illegitimate. That's defending America. Okay. You've got some supporters, Ambassador. Now there. C careful now. Don't 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 yeah. uh, no, no, reveal no, yourselves. No, no, no. The gentleman here. <laughs> yeah. Please. Ambassador Bolton, I have a question. Um, sorry, where are you, please? No, it's over here. Oh, sorry, okay. I agree with you that the issue of nuclear proliferation has got at its very essence the fact that the countries pursuing, uh, they're watching Iran's nuclear program, which, by the way, I think has been in place for over 50 years, not 20 years as you depicted, just uh, by the time of the Shah, it was, support, it was supported by the U.S. Um, not, my not question in nuclear is, program. My question is, um, how do you think are the U.S.'s actions being followed by the states in this region, and how do you think does that contribute on terrorism in this region on globally? Thank you very much. Wh which states are you talking about? The in ones the Middle East. In the, the, one, the ones whose oil we buy? In the region. You can choose. Well, no, why don't you pick some? Seriously. Middle East. No, well, Iraq. Do you think Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Do you think everything in the Middle East is fungible? I think this is, this is an important, a very important point. You have different regimes with different economic interests, different political interests. If you ask me, for example, about the countries, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, I think they fear the Iranian pursuit of nuclear weapons profoundly. I think if you ask about other Arab states in the region, like uh, Egypt, I think they fear it profoundly as well. I think uh, the Turks fear an Iranian nuclear weapon profoundly. And I think what they want from the United States, uh, although they don't like to say it publicly, uh, is protection against that uh, Iranian capability. And uh, some stand by America against the terrorism financed by Iran, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's why I think, and you know, disagree if you, if you want to, when the Israelis attacked that Syrian facility on September the 6th, what you heard from the rest of the Arab world was silence. 
And the reason for that, I think, is they probably believe, uh, just as the public reports indicate, that that facility was nuclear, that it was uh, that it involved North Koreans. And my judgment is that Syria would not have engaged in nuclear cooperation with North Korea without Iranian acquiescence. Uh, and because of that fear, uh, the Arab states, although, again, they couldn't say it publicly, um, uh, were, were willing to have Israel do what they did. Uh, gentleman up there on the, on the aisle, yeah, please. Yep. Ambassador Bolton, um, just going back to um, your claim of, of balance and uh, impartiality with regards to uh, the representation of Israel at the United Nations, um, in remarks to Benai Brith International, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, um, no less, it wasn't sort of the Guardian newspaper or an academic from uh, Harvard or Chicago, described you as, quote, a secret member of Israel's own team at the United Nations, mm -hmm. going on to say, quote, today the secret is out. We really are not just five diplomats, six, including John Bolton. Um, in light of that, um, I, I mean, I, I'd just like to hear your comment on it. Really. Do you have a sense of humor? <laughs> in the light of that fact, is it true? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> is, that, is, is that the full question? Okay, fine. <laughs> Didn't want to cut you he, off at the knees. He, he does have a sense of humour. There you go. Well, we've got a sense of humour. Okay, gentleman here in the front, please. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, obviously, you're quite an outspoken critic of the UN. Um, I was wondering to what extent your attitudes reflect that of President Bush and whether you think a Giuliani, um, Clinton or Romney presidency, how that they would change the way they dealt with the UN depending on who gets into power in a way. Well, that, the, the uh, three candidates you've mentioned have a, uh, uh, I think, have, have disparate views on the subject, and I, I think this is one of the uh, issues that has not been fully debated in the campaign. It's one reason, as I say, that I wrote the book. Uh, I, I can't speak for the different candidates. I'm not supporting any particular candidate for president. My life cycle is not in tune with our presidential election cycle. I wanted to write this book and get it out. Uh, and so I don't presume to speak for, uh, for any of them. But I do think that the Democratic Party, as reflected by um, the, uh, the, the uh, Clinton administration in the 1990s and its candidates since then, uh, is, is more likely uh, than the Republicans to try and run more foreign policy through the UN. This is what John Kerry meant, I think, in 2004 when he talked about a global test for American foreign policy, which is a principle that has been rejected by every Republican candidate and some of the Democrats. But if you had a lot of money, Ambassador, who do you think would win the next presidential election? And who would you put your money on? I wouldn't put it on anybody at this point. Uh, a, a, serious answer to that, a serious answer to that is that uh, uh, I think the next election will be closely contested, um, despite the uh, uh, level of the Bush administration's popularity. Uh, I, would only note, I would only note, despite its level in the mid-30s, that the new Democratic leadership of, of Congress has done the nearly impossible by taking Congress's approval ratings down to the low 20s. Um, and I think Americans generally, but particularly in presidential elections, vote for the future. They don't vote against the past. They say, what are these two candidates for president offering me in terms of what comes next. And I think because the Bush administration is not on the ballot, uh, that, the, that the election, as the past uh, several have been, will be, will be closely divided. And I wouldn't predict the outcome at this point. It's a okay. year away. Fair enough. Uh, lady here, yeah, please. 
Mr. Bolton, I'm, I'm really quite worried. I came in worried and I'm going to go out even more worried. Um, the, the last Lancet report... I had the report, right impact. That's what an education's about. Well, yeah. The, the last the Lancet NSC. report said that over 650,000 civilians had been killed in Iraq. Madeleine Albright, we all know, said that the half a million children dead as a result of US sanctions was a price worth paying. We can debate that to the end of the day. I worry that we're... I, I, am, we, I am not going to defend Madeleine Albright, so don't get your Okay, okay, that's... <laughs> Good, I'm pleased to hear that. We're, we've heard for the past hour the same kind of rhetoric that we heard in 2002, in 2003, about WMDs in Iraq. Um, but now we're hearing it about Iran, we're hearing it about North Korea. What guarantees can you make that this isn't going to be another Iraq? And I, and I, I fear it will be. Um, so it's a twofold question. Considering 86% of Iraqis think the US troops should get out, is it not time for us to respect the democracy that you brought them? And B, I just wondered how the search for WMDs was going. Right. Right. So, I, I assume you agree with that, I must right. <laughs> but, let me Let me say first, I, I think one of the lessons we learned from Iraq uh, is that uh, we would have been uh, far better advised to turn uh, uh, responsibility for the internal affairs of Iraq back over to Iraqis much earlier. I think it, uh, this is 2020 hindsight to be sure, but I think setting up the coalition provisional authority and becoming an occupying uh, power and by making governmental decisions was a mistake. The, the fundamental fact of Iraq was that uh, with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party, there was no political culture. There had been a dictatorship. Political culture requires uh, politics of uh, free expression and accommodation. And in Iraq for decades, uh, if not longer, uh, the, the uh, attributes of a civil political culture that we take for granted in the United States, that you take for granted in the United Kingdom, didn't exist. So that the uh, difficulties, among the difficulties that Iraqis face today is learning that politics is not a zero-sum game. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily would have resulted in a completely different situation than we have now, but I think forcing Iraqis to make decisions and accept the consequences earlier would have enhanced the prospects uh, that, that, a, uh, a, that a peaceful and largely democratic society could have emerged. I don't think you increase political maturation by making decisions for other people. I think you increase political maturation by having them make decisions for themselves. Uh, and I think uh, if, you, if you look at the, uh, the images of people in the voting lines of Iraq in the several referenda and elections that have been held, uh, the desire to have control over their own lives and their own government is quite apparent. Whether that will succeed or not, uh, I don't know. But I don't think that there was any uh, alternative for the United States except to uh, point the Iraqis in this direction. Uh, and hope that it succeeds. Uh, the case of Iran, I think, is uh, substantially different uh, because I think the nature of the threat that we face from Iran is different, and I think, therefore, the military, the strategic response uh, by the United States, if it comes to that, will be different. But you have to acknowledge that the choice we face is not a choice in the case of Iran, is not a choice between the status quo and the use of targeted force against the Iranian nuclear program. The choice we face is between the use of force and a nuclear Iran. Okay, the gentleman here, yeah. Ambassador, oh, Ambassador Bolton, um, I think 
the most disappointing thing for me to personally to hear this evening was to hear you talk so disparagingly about the United Nations as an organization. I've hardly mentioned it. About the United Nations. Maybe that's what you're bothered by. When you were complaining about the death penalty, um, to speak so disparagingly about the United Nations as an organization that can seek aggressive change across the world in other nations, especially given that that was the main justification for going to war in Iraq, was that Saddam was treating his people awfully and we needed to do something about it. But actually, my main question is going back to the NPT, because I think there's part of that that you left out. Yes, the countries that didn't have nuclear weapons agreed who signed the NPT, agreed that they wouldn't pursue it. But the countries that did have nuclear weapons also agreed that they would systematically reduce their nuclear weapon stockpiles over, over a period of years and eventually seek um, to abandon them completely. The NPT was signed in the 1960s. The example you gave of missile reduction was in 2002. But it's pitiful, given that the amount of nuclear weapons that they have left will still be enough to destroy the planet ten times over. So it's, it's no wonder if some people are ignoring uh, their obligations under the NPT, but other people feel justified in, in doing so uh, themselves. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that was one reason why these countries are searching for nuclear weapons? Of course they're not. <laughs> The position, the position of the nuclear weapon states, I think, is a is a trivial uh, justification for the non-nuclear weapon states to seek the weapons. And in fact, the biggest problem that we've had in the world about proliferation uh, has come from the nuclear weapon states themselves. Russia supplying India with the wherewithal, China supplying Pakistan, France supplying. Uh, Israel. If the nuclear weapon states themselves hadn't started down that path, we'd be in a lot safer world. And the only two countries that haven't engaged in it are the United States and the United Kingdom. Now, they have indeed. When the NPT was signed, nuclear weapons levels and deployed, operationally deployed weapons, which are critical, were still going up. There's never been an arms control treaty that's required the destruction of a single nuclear weapon. But we have drawn down our stockpiles and we are uh, uh, eliminating nuclear weapons uh, at a substantial rate in the United States. So I think we are moving toward the direction that the NPT requires. The NPT does not set a deadline or a timetable uh, for the elimination of all of these weapons. And indeed, the fact that other countries are now acquiring them makes it a lot less likely that the nuclear weapon states will give theirs up. But I want to come back to the United Nations. The first thing you said was, that the UN should be a force for progressive change in the world. Wrong word. Um, the, 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 issue, the issue for the United Nations uh, is whether it's going to uh, fulfill the central, um, uh, the central objective of its founders to prevent the scourge of war uh, from, from engulfing mankind again. And the fact is, during the Cold War, it was utterly irrelevant, utterly irrelevant to the great struggle of the second half of the 20th century. And it's fast making itself irrelevant uh, to the threat of the 21st century, which is the threat of terrorism and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, as the inability of the Council to deal with North Korea and Iran shows, as the inability of the UN as a whole to agree on a definition of terrorism. Uh, but let, let's come back to the, to the point about the political role of the United Nations. For years, the UN Human Rights Commission has been considered to be a disgrace to the UN. That's not just my opinion. That was Kofi Annan's opinion, okay? Now, does anybody here think that the record of the UN Human Rights Commission has been beneficial to human rights on, on, on the whole? Okay, so a few years ago, Kofi Annan 
and, and every, almost every Western European uh, democratic country said we're going to reform the UN Human Rights Commission. We're going to create a new body uh, that will not defend and protect the world's gross abusers of human rights, but will in fact pursue uh, human rights as an objective. And what we came up with uh, was a range of procedural reforms that would result in a different composition for the Human Rights Commission that would uh, reduce the number of states that were themselves abusers of human rights or that tolerated abuse of human rights and that would increase the likelihood that the Human Rights Council, the new body as we were going to call it, could actually be a positive force for human rights. Now, no one of these reforms in and of itself was enough. It was the aggregate of reforms, a two-thirds election requirement to get on the uh, council, and a series of other uh, limiting the size of the body, uh, which I think always makes UN bodies more effective the smaller they are, uh, and, and a range of other uh, devices, all procedural, conceitedly, but which taken as an aggregate, when we started out, we felt would create the potential for a human rights decision-making body that would really change the way the UN addressed human rights. And during over a year of negotiation, what happened was that the abusers of human rights, uh, with Russia and China participating, systematically, one by one, got those procedural reforms eliminated. The United States didn't give up on them. The Europeans gave up on them. And that's the fact of the negotiation as you can, as you can trace back over this year and a half. I knew that the game was up when the European Union agreed to remove one last procedural reform. And this was a requirement that we would have had in the creation of the new body that said no country under sanctions by the Security Council for gross abuses of human rights or support for terrorism could be on the Human Rights Council. Let me, let me repeat that. No country could be on the Human Rights Council if it was a gross abuser of human rights or a supporter of terrorism as determined by the Security Council. And the overwhelming majority of the non-aligned states said, we can't accept that, and the Europeans gave it up. So what happened was you couldn't even get a procedural protection that said if you were declared by the Security Council to be a gross abuser of human rights, you could still serve on the Human Rights Council. And that's why the United States voted against the new council uh, and why I was proud to do it because I felt that we had jettisoned any chance for real reform. And in fact, the record of the new body in the year and a half since it's been created is as bad or worse than the Human Rights Commission. And that's just not my opinion. In the United States, it's actually been written editorial by, of all places, the New York Times and the Washington Post. So you want to know why people are skeptical in the U.S. about reform in the U.N., read the history of the Human Rights Council. Okay, I've got two or three more to go before we get the gentleman here. Yeah, yeah right, two questions. Uh, first, regarding Iran, what would be the consequence, do you think, of an attack on Iran? You say that the choice now is either a nuclear, uh, nuclear Iran, Iran or uh, an attack, but I think the choice is rather a nuclear Iran or the consequences of an attack. My second question is, who within the Bush administration is responsible for the failure in Iraq? And maybe what is your responsibility in the failure of Iraq? Thank you. Well, I think the, the answer to the first question is that, uh, as I said in my earlier remarks, I do not view the prospect of the use of military force against Iran as a happy alternative. I think it's very risky. 
and I think the consequences could be uh, uh, quite destructive. But imagine the power of Iran multiplied by the force of nuclear weapons and the risk down the road of adverse consequences is far greater. I think our chances of dealing with the Iranian nuclear threat right now are slipping away because I have no doubt the Iranians are doing everything they can to hide and harden the facilities they have. The biggest risk we face in Iran is that we could uh, eliminate the uranium enrichment facility at Natanz, for instance, which I think we could do, uh, only to find the Iranians have built another duplicate or larger facility uh, hundreds of miles away as yet undetected by us. So that's why I think that the, uh, the window here uh, is quite narrow. Uh, and in the case of Iraq, uh, you know, I think ultimately uh, the, the administration as a whole uh, bears responsibility for it. I still believe the decision to eliminate Saddam Hussein was a strategic victory for the United States and everybody who fears the use of weapons of mass destruction. I think an ancillary strategic victory of overthrowing Saddam was Gaddafi's decision for Libya to give up nuclear weapons uh, so completely that we, uh, together with the, uh, the, the British, uh, boxed up uh, Muammar Gaddafi's nuclear weapons program and shipped it to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is the best place for it. Uh, uh, I think that the, the, the consequences, the four years following the overthrow of Saddam, uh, have obviously not been satisfactory, and I think we've learned some lessons from that. I, I don't doubt the United States has responsibility for it, uh, and, and that, that's just something that we, uh, that, that we live with. But if you ask me from a cost-benefit a basis on balance, we are still well ahead by having eliminated Saddam's regime. Uh, a question over here. Yep. Hi. Um, I would just like to ask you, I'm quite curious, I was just wondering if you stand by your remark that you were, I quote, damned proud of what we did, unquote, to prevent an early ceasefire during the 2006 war in Lebanon, and similarly, whether you are damned proud of helping Israel kill over a thousand Lebanese women, children, and men, and whether you are similarly damn proud of helping Israel drop thousands yes of now? cluster bombs, <laughs> thousands of cluster bombs which are still maiming and killing innocent Lebanese civilians to this very day. And similarly, I would like to rest on the fact that I think you're a war criminal and a mass murderer, and I also think that with my last question, I would like to ask you, how can you sleep? How can you sleep? How can you sleep at night knowing the amount of destruction you have caused to our world? And I would like to show you a picture of the Lebanese dead, which you have helped kill because you support the rogue state Israel and its terrorist policies, not Iran, not Iraq's terrorism, but Israel's terrorist policies. All right. Thank you very much. Let's, let, let's, let's be very clear what precipitated the uh, Hezbollah-Israel war last year. Uh, an unprovoked attack across the blue line by Hezbollah uh, following similar uh, attacks over the years and years and years of rocket attacks uh, against uh, Israeli uh, civilian populations. So oh, come on, guys. Oh, come on. You've had a chance. You've had a chance. You've had a chance. Fair uh, I think I think is thank you. I think Israel was exercising its right of self-defense, and I think that the uh, consequence of the way that Hezbollah uh, armed and defended itself uh, uh, exacerbated the uh, terrible tragedy of civilian casualties uh, and the way Hezbollah uh, used the UN uh, as a shield. I can give you uh, examples. Hezbollah would set up mortars right near UN observer positions 
fire off two or three mortars, and then leave, uh, which uh, exposed the UN uh, personnel uh, to unnecessary risk. This, this is part of what is wrong uh, with this kind of terrorist operation. And I tell you, it is one reason why the UN's inability to distinguish between true terrorism against innocent civilians and the legitimate right of self-defense has paralyzed the UN's ability to have a positive impact uh, in the Middle East. One of the clear objectives we have uh, and, and had as we negotiated Resolution 1701 was to try and implement fully Resolution 1559 and 1595, which called for the uh, full control by the democratic government of Lebanon over its sovereign territory. Uh, before the Hezbollah-Israel war and after the Israel-Hezbollah war, Hezbollah, a terrorist group, an armed militia faction inside Lebanon, controlled territory and denied control of it to the legitimately elected democratic government of Lebanon. That remains true to this day. And 1701 has been violated in many particulars, not least of which is Iran and Syrian resupply of Hezbollah uh, with weapons and missiles to allow it once again to threaten Israel and to terrorize innocent civilians inside Lebanon. I, your criticism of Israel would carry a lot more weight if you once defended democracy in Lebanon. We could go on for about another two or three hours, but we can't. And this is going to have to be the last question from the gentleman here, the lucky man who drew the straw. Um, I just kind of going in another direction. Um, I was wondering what uh, your view of what will be the role of, especially when, with dealing with groups and with countries that don't necessarily play by the rules of diplomacy, what you think the role of the intelligence community is going to be in the future. And by the intelligence community, I actually mean beyond just the United States. I mean also Britain well, I think that, um, that over the decades, American intelligence capabilities have suffered. Uh, I think we have extraordinarily good uh, technical capabilities. I think our human intelligence capabilities have declined. I think that's a problem for the United States. I think it's very hard to penetrate terrorist groups uh, that threaten us and threaten uh, other uh, advanced democracies. Uh, and I think as long as our intelligence capabilities remain impaired, we are at, at uh, greater risk. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the inadequacies of our intelligence capabilities actually enhance the prospect that military force might have to be used at some point. I'd rather spend more money on developing our human intelligence and uh, relying less on liaison services. Uh, I think this is something that we desperately need in a world where we're threatened by uh, terrorists and by the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I think that, and this is my last comment, uh, one of the Bush administration's greatest legacies will be the Proliferation Security Initiative, uh, which is a uh, designed to prevent international trafficking in weapons and materials of mass destruction. Over 80 countries now subscribe to the Statement of Interdiction Principles. We share intelligence. We've, uh, we've had major successes in the interdiction of uh, trafficking and weapons of mass destruction. We exposed the AQCON proliferation network by seizing a ship of, uh, filled with centrifuge parts bound for Libya. We helped bring down the Libyan nuclear weapons program. Uh, this is a case of intelligence sharing. Uh, and it's a different kind of multilateral 
uh, activity. As one British diplomat said when we were negotiating the Statement of Interdiction Principles uh, back in 2003, said PSI, the Proliferation Security Initiative, PSI is an activity, not an organization. It's an activity, not an organization. Some would say as opposed to the UN, which is an organization but not an activity. Uh, PSI has no secretary general. It has no secretary. It has no headquarters. Uh, it has no bureaucracy. It's just 80 countries that are determined to prevent trafficking and weapons of mass destruction using law enforcement, military, and intelligence uh, mechanisms. And I think it's a great success and a model for the future. Thank you all very much. Thank you.